Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Just because Hammer Films scored a lot of success with their gothic horror films like Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, and all the others, doesn't mean that they gave up on making other kinds of films. And in 1963, they released the film Paranoiac. It's black and white, it was a contemporary thriller, there's no monsters to speak of, and well... Oliver Reed, why don't you tell us what kind of movie it is? The 1963 production, Paranoic, comes from Let's Drive the Girl Insane, School of Plots. Okay, I think that might be oversimplifying the story a little bit. Uh, By the way, that was Oliver Reed doing the narration in a TV series called The World of Hammer. It was released in 1990. I didn't see it on TV. This was actually a series of shorts that were released as special features on DVD releases of various Hammer films here in the States. And in this particular episode of The World of Hammer, he talks about Paranoiac as well as a bunch of their other thriller or mini Hitchcock films. We're going to talk about the film Paranoiac here in a moment. First, I want to address something, though. We got a piece of feedback from Rod from the Nashi cast, but we got it after we recorded. Because this episode goes out at the end of the month, we obviously record sometime, well, before then. And we recorded before we got the feedback. So, Rod, we'll play your feedback in next month's episode. Stay tuned to the very end of this episode to find out how you can contribute your own feedback if you want to be included in an upcoming episode of 1951 Down Place. Just because we don't have Rod's feedback this month doesn't mean we aren't going to hear Rod a little bit in this promo. Then we're going to get into the film discussion. Hello, I'm Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your genial hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. Who is Paul Nashy? He is a director. He is a writer. He is an actor. He is a werewolf. He is all of these things, and he is more. And he does pretty well with the ladies, too. Well, at least in the films he writes. Yeah, that's true. Have you ever seen a Paul Nashie film? Would titles like The Marshal of Hell, Count Dracula's Great Love, Beast and the Magic Sword, Fury of the Wolfman, Curse the Devil, Vengeance of the Zombies, Panic Beats, People Who Own the Dark, Crimson. Oh, I should have mentioned that. No, don't mention Crimson. Yeah. <laughs> If any of these film titles alone intrigue you, come to the Nashy cast. Let us guide you through the films of Paul Nashy, where you realize the Spanish horror is a completely separate field of endeavor. Totally weird, and something that, uh, well, I don't know, it might not be for you, I don't know. Yeah, so you never know you try. Give it a shot. Give it a try. Give it a try. Join us for the Nashy cast. You'll be glad you did. At least we hope so. The dictionary says, paranoia, mental disease with delusions of fame, grandeur, persecution. Paranoia. Paranoia. One who suffers from delusions of fame, grandeur, persecution. Mental disease. Mental disease. This is the Ashby family. 
Eleanor Ashby, whose beautiful young life is darkened by a sinister shadow. Her sister is sick. Sick? Well, she's... She's very upset and disturbed. Auntie, dear, my sister's insane. What strange sickness needed the constant attention of such an unconventional nurse? Simon Ashby. twisted, greedy mind was obsessed by an inheritance of half a million pounds. For eight years, they presumed that Anthony Ashby was dead. Now, his unexpected return engulfs the Ashby family in a wave of terror. Go away! Uh, Don't come near me! Don't come near me! Uh, I'm like Simon! I'm mad! I'm insane! Harriet Ashby, who guarded with insane loyalty a secret too horrifying to share. Simon belongs to me. No one shall hurt him! That was the trailer for 1963's Paranoiac, written by Jimmy Sangster and directed by Freddie Francis, uh, with a very aggressively drunk Oliver Reed in the role. Uh, Simon Ashby, who is just one of uh, a number of characters who apparently are all vying for uh, an inheritance in the film, but I don't want to get too much into the plot because, uh, well, I think Casey does that better than I do. Uh, <laughs> Oh, man, so Paranoiac, what did y'all think, man? Do we want to talk uh, plot or want to get into our thoughts? What do we want to do? I watched it last night, and uh, I know that we brought this up on uh, Facebook, that this is in the vein of a Hitchcockian type of feel of a movie, and I wanted to say that uh, that kind of hit home to me uh, as well, watching this. In fact... Yeah. I really thought that uh, Oliver Reed was on par with Anthony Perkins. Oh, wow. In Psycho. <laughs> I, wow, okay. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing as far as, you know, I thought it was, this was extremely Hitchcocky and very much so. I don't know that Reed hit uh, quite the same uh, stride as uh, Anthony Hopkins for me, but I, mean, I still thought it was pretty good, good performance. Anthony Perkins. Yeah, him too. Sorry. <laughs> Now I want to see Anthony Hopkins in, <laughs> in Psycho. <laughs> he could be good. He could be good. Hey, at, least I, at least I didn't say Vince Vaughn. Oh. Very good. Oh, Casey. We would have ended oh. the show right here. Yeah, that's it. The end. Thank you for listening to the final episode of 1951 Down. 
Is that the day I get fired? <laughs> so this is based on a novel. Uh, it's based on a novel by Josephine Tay called Brett Farr. I've never read the book. I've never read the novel. Uh, but Hammers had their hands on it for about 10 years before they actually made the film. They bought the rights in 1954, put it on the 1955 schedule, canceled it, tried to get it in 1959, canceled it again, then got Jimmy Sankster to do an adaptation. And that's the film that we ultimately see. That said, once Sankster wrote the screenplay, it ended up being so far removed from the actual uh, source material that at one point Hammer considered not even extending the rights that they had to the book. I've never read the novel, but in the book, New Heritage of Horror, uh, writer David Ryrie calls Paranoiac a, a drastic reworking of the novel. So, I mean, it, it must vary quite a bit from the source material. I know the source material does have a lot to do with, like, horse racing, that the family might be involved in horse racing, that sort of thing. But for budgetary reasons, Hammer's just like, yeah, uh-uh, we're not doing horses. We'll give all read a, a fast car and call it good. Yeah, they, so, didn't, uh, they didn't really <laughs> reference where they got their money. It's just not at all. They had money. Yeah, they didn't say where it came from, just except for the fact that it was some kind of like a trust fund left by the dead parents that none of them could fully inherit until they hit a certain age, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which yeah. Oliver Reed's character was like three weeks out from. Yeah, almost there. Yes. Almost there. <laughs> and, and quite honestly, none of these characters could have earned any money doing anything. <laughs> That's yeah. true. They're all quite broken. Very. <laughs> there's no quite about it. <laughs> I'm not sure there was a sane person living in that house. Yeah, especially not to start. Especially I don't know, not to start. Uh, well, I don't know about her sanity, but Francois, the nurse, was all right. <laughs> uh, I, I questioned her sanity. She was uh, in love with uh, Simon. Yeah. I think yeah. love was probably a little bit of a stretch there. She knew what she was getting into as far as the inheritance goes down the line. Well, that's true. <laughs> She did make some uh, some interesting, uh, interestingly bad life choices that led her up to this point. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. How, how did Simon meet her? How did she get involved? That's what I. Well, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Casey, can you tell us a little bit about the story of the film? The film itself. The story goes that the, the Ashby family. We start out at the at a memorial service for the the parents that passed away and the brother. Uh, I think his name was Anthony. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, it's Anthony or Tony. <laughs> service which we are holding today is in memory of our dear friends John and Mary Ashby and their son Anthony. John and Mary Ashby were known and loved by you all. We members of this little community remember them for the many kindnesses they showed to each and every one of us. And although it is 11 years since, since we lost them in such tragic circumstances, we still remember them with respect and affection. How much more poignant must be the memories of the Ashby family, of Harriet Ashby, John's sister, who so gallantly assumed the responsibility of bringing up the children, of the children themselves, little Eleanor. What can ever replace the gap left in her life by the death of her dear mother and father? And Simon Ashby, who still plays the organ in this church occasionally, as he has done since he was 15 years old. They're having a memorial service for them, and we see Simon is there, and I believe the sister is there. But then eventually they get back to the mansion with Simon and his sister and his aunt, and they're all uh, kind of reminiscing there and going about. And the sister starts thinking she's seeing things outside, 
And but everybody assumes that oh, she's just insane, so we're not going to worry about it. But she thinks she's seeing their dead brother walking around outside. And before long, there the, there's a lot of Oliver Reed chewing up scenery going along here with this that extends out the plot a little bit. But the the basic plot's pretty simple because then we go into Oliver Reed's character uh, of Simon. He's burning through what little allowance he's given from the trust fund by the lawyer and he burns through it simply on booze more than anything he's a, a, a raging alcoholic in this movie and he's out of money he wants more booze <laughs> and he's arguing with the lawyer to give him more money and the lawyer's telling him you have to wait three more weeks and then it's all yours you could do whatever you want with it then but until then you're out of luck because I've given you all your you know you've got coming to you this month Pretty soon, we notice that we find out that the sister who's thinking that she keeps seeing their brother, dead brother Tony, out in the garden, she does run into him, and it is Tony, so they think. And so this starts to set off uh, Simon's paranoia in the fact that he is worried about how much of the share of the trust fund that he's going to get. Simon is constantly scheming throughout this movie on how he's going to get his hands on the full trust fund, and so a lot of that becomes... Uh, is focused on convincing everybody that his sister is insane and that she needs to be shipped off to the nut house, essentially, so that she gets cut out of the inheritance. Your only concern is to keep alive the Ashby legend, the good name of the family. If you behave like a normal human being, I wouldn't have to. Before you start apportioning the blame, how do you suppose it looked letting little Eleanor behave like that in public? Must have given the villagers a marvelous tidbit. Your sister is sick. Sick? Well, she's she's very upset, disturbed. Auntie, dear, my sister's insane. If you're so concerned about the good name of the Ashby family, I think the best thing you could do is to have her certified as a lunatic and locked up. You'd really like that, wouldn't you, Simon? And then when uh, the dead brother Tony shows up, it throws a bigger monkey wrench into his plans because now he's looking at a possible three-way split, which sends him into a drunken panic. <laughs> and going on from there, I don't know that I want to go into too much more detail here because really we get start to get into spoiler territory once we go beyond this. This one has a lot of twists and turns and a lot of things that happen. I think if we do spoil it, it does kind of ruin some of the effectiveness of the film. So, I, yeah, I agree. Let's not right. get too spoilery. But the main thing that we focus on here throughout this movie, and it, and it extends throughout the entire movie, is that Simon Ashby is our main character, and he is a very disturbed individual, and he's very broken, and he's got a lot of problems that he's trying to work through <laughs> throughout <laughs> this entire movie, and it's really apparent that here early on in the movie... Well, I'm not even sure he's trying to work through them because no, he's... No, not at all. <laughs> That's a fair point. He's not trying at all. He's enjoying his uh, drunken revelry. <laughs> well, he, he's got that, plus they're living with their aunt, who is basically an enabler for him. Mm-hmm. And she's yeah. just she's just as nutty as he is. It's funny watching this because it's just so overwhelming on how messed up this family is. <laughs> you know, a good chunk of this movie when they first come back from the... Uh, from the memorial services, Simon and his aunt arguing over how insane that the, the sister is, and they don't really care. They're just trying to argue over the fact that you know the level of insanity that's going on there. Well, and that's the reason that he brought in Francois. He was thinking that she could commit his sister. 
Well, that was one of two reasons that he brought her in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Francois played by Lillian Bruce or Bruce. I don't think she made a very good nurse, but I don't think that's why she was hired. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nurse? How is my little sister? She's upset. You're a master of the understatement, aren't you? Why don't you admit she's out of her mind? I'm a nurse. Only a doctor could say that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as far as the cast goes, you mentioned Oliver Reed, and yeah, he's chewing the hell up out of this scenery, spits it out and chews it up again. He is charismatic to a fault. Now, he, he's, he's not a pleasant guy. Uh, you know, this is classic Oliver Reed, and from all accounts and all stories about the man, I can't imagine that the behaviors that Simon partakes in in the film was a real stretch for Oliver Reed <laughs> yeah. regarding the drinking and the, the hard living and the carousing and going to the bars all the time or the pubs all the time. Uh, if you, if you look into Oliver Reed's life and, and background and I mean, the guy died in a pub. I, I can't imagine this was a real stretch for him. That said, he's still charismatic and I couldn't help but watch the guy every time he turns up on screen. There's just yeah. something, there's a magnetism to the man. Well, and there's something going on here because the, there's nobody else in this movie, and I'm not saying that the other performances are bad, but nobody else in this movie are, is performing quite at the level that Oliver Reed is. So oh, when no. he comes on when he comes on the scene, you can't help but you know focus on whatever the hell he's doing because he's just in your face and he's <laughs> here we go. Yeah. The one point I wanted to make on him, and in, in, in earlier I said he was uh, up there with Anthony Perkins, and the reason I say that is. For a large chunk of the beginning of the film, you just think he's a drunk. You don't know he's got this psychotic side to him. He hides that really well, just as um, Norman hides it really well in Psycho. And I thought he pulled that off really well. At points, I just thought he was a mean drunk. I didn't suspect this really psychotic side that he had that doesn't come out until about a third or so into the movie. You really start to get a sense of how crazy this man is. Oh, and he's very capable. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that he's a capable man, too. I mean, he's he's not just, you know, trying to wait out, looking for the money. He's doing things to try to get his hands on the trust fund. He's working on his sister. He's working the nurse angle. Uh, he's very aware of what's going on with the funds when he talks to the lawyer and the lawyer's son. You know, so he's yeah. not just a guy who's just angry and drinking all the time. There's something happening beneath the surface where he's very manipulating and calculating. And then even deeper than that, you know, he's got the crazy. But I almost thought he was sort of a drunk slash con man at one point in the film. Yeah, you definitely do get the sense that if he wasn't kind of a spoiled trust fund kid, that he would definitely be dangerous as a con man if he actually applied himself to it. Yep. I, I don't know if I can imagine this role being played by anybody other than Oliver Reed. Uh, he, and I'm sure part of it is him bringing his real life to the to the screen there. Uh, in the horror people, writer John Brosnan calls this probably Oliver Reed's best Hammer film. You know, and, and Reed's done some Hammer work. You know, I just talked about Night Creatures over on the B movie cast where he's in that, and of course he's in Curse of the Werewolf. But man, in this one, he is. 110%, all cylinders firing, and then some. He's just great in this film. And it takes a lot for me to really get into a film in which our lead character or one of our lead characters or all the lead characters are kind of broken 
not fun people to be with. But I didn't mind watching Oliver Reed in this at all. Well, I know you and I had talked uh, outside of the show about Oliver Reed and the fact that I thought this was the first movie that I had personally ever seen him in. I did do some looking, and there is one other film that I have seen him in, and it's The Sting 2. I want to go watch The Sting 2 again, knowing a little bit more about the man that I do now. And I actually want to see more movies that he's done, and because I really enjoyed his performance in this film. Uh, the rest of the cast, uh, you mentioned the aunt, played by Sheila Burrell. I think that she had some complexity to her role, but not nearly as deep or entertaining to watch as Oliver Reed's performance. And then, of course, we had the other sister, or the, the sister, Eleanor Ashby, played by Jeanette Scott, who was also in Hammer's The Old Dark House, which we're going to be covering here in a couple of months. But that was the only other film she did for Hammer. She was the most sane of the bunch. And I think the reason that she comes off as crazy is because she was being manipulated by everybody else in that house. Oh, very much so. She seemed to be the one who was being affected the most by other people as opposed to like instigating any of the crazy. They made they did a really good job with this building it up that her insanity was ex- very much a product of her brother and her aunt's manipulation. There's no question about it all along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They kept her sheltered. They kept her pinned, away, you know, pinned away, and then they just fed into all of the, you know, everything, all the anxieties that she had going on. They just fed into that and stoked the fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and I really liked the one scene where she, and I don't want to say what triggers it, but when she just goes batshit at one point. And yeah, I thought yeah. she pulled that off really well because you know she just really broke down. I think of all the performances in the film, all the uh, performers in the film, her character goes on the most interesting arc. I mean, I, I love Oliver Reed in this film. Don't get me wrong. I think he's fantastic. Okay. But Oliver Reed's already kind of there. You know, his character's already kind of where he needs to be to make this film work. He doesn't share it all with us at first, but his character's already there. Whereas Jeanette Scott as Eleanor Ashby does go on this bizarre arc, this this character journey where, you know, first maybe she is crazy and well, well, maybe not. Maybe she's being affected by everybody else. And then Tony shows back up and then what's up with that? And then what you just said, Scott, about the trigger, which again, I God, I want to talk about it, <laughs> but I don't want to spoil it because yep. it goes into... <laughs> Yeah, territory for me. But good. We may have to go. I don't know. At this point in for this discussion, we may have to have a spoiler alert alert at some point, just so we can talk about the meat of this. <laughs> well, before we get into that, you know, there's some of the the minor characters that in the in the minor plot points that really kind of bugged me. Okay. Uh, and and I wanted to talk about the lawyer, and I'm uh, trying to remember which actor was the lawyer. Cosette. Cosette, and then his son, uh, Keith. Their roles in this film, especially um, Cosette, the, the main lawyer, he w- was really big in the first 20 minutes and then just kind of disappeared. Yeah. 
that the whole backstory of you know of who's embezzling who just kind of fizzled out. Yeah, very much so. They uh, they brought that up. I agree totally on that one, Scott, because they brought it up, and it was such a big that scene with uh, the elder Costette and Simon talking about Simon uh, wanting more money out of his trust fund, essentially, so he could buy more booze and whatnot. That was a pretty big scene, and it felt pretty weighty. But then after that, they just did nothing with him. Well, they had that, and then they had him go. Uh, Simon then went and talked to Keith, and Keith ended up giving him some money. And you know that whole enabler uh, act that Keith was doing just kind of falls away. You don't see him. You see him a little bit more of of. And again, this would be more of the spoilery thing of of what he's trying to do. But then that just kind of peters out as well. It leads to a, uh, a fairly big plot point for this movie with these lawyers, but they don't do enough to set up things for me. Yeah. For what what, what turns along, along the way, because it's more of a tell versus a show as far as writing goes, because they wait until after it's all said and done, and they just tell you what all was going on instead of actually showing, this ha- showing it to us as it happens throughout the movie, which would have made this far more effective. Yeah, they were just kind of there like, okay, we need that the audience knows these things are going on, but you don't need to know why or really what's happening with it. It is it is happening. Especially for what the younger Cosette ultimately is doing in the story, I felt, I agree with you both, that there needed to be a little bit more meat or more uh, screen time with that particular character for what his ultimate role is and everything. It, it did need to, There did need to be more going on there other than just... I don't know, having him be there, and, and like Casey said, and I think it's a great way to put it, a, a tell versus a show. And really, this could have been, if they would have handled this a little bit differently with these two lawyers and whatnot and their story, and they would have kept some details of what was going on a little more secret for a little bit longer, this could have had a, oh, a far more shocking twist a la a Hitchcock movie that they're obviously paying homage to here, so to speak, or borrowing from. I think it would have been a far more effective shock later on in the movie if they would have played this out more. The whole scene that, that really triggers uh, Eleanor would have even been more if we didn't know the secret already. Exactly. Yeah. What did you guys think of Tony, the actor who played Tony, Alexander Davian? Who are you and what do you want? You know who I am, Aunt Harriet. I know who you'd like us to think you are. And please call me Miss Ashby. Miss Ashby. You'd like us to think you're Tony Ashby, wouldn't you? Well, I don't know what your game is, but in case you're unaware of the fact, Tony Ashby committed suicide eight years ago. And he left a note saying, I can't stand it any longer. Please forgive me. You read about that in the papers, of course. He left a note on the clifftop to make it look as though it was suicide. But it wasn't. They didn't find a body, did they, Miss Ashby? They didn't, did they? The tide's very strong there. There wasn't a body. I just ran away. You just ran away? Why? Because I couldn't stand being with you for a moment longer, Aunt Harriet. To be honest, in comparison to everything else, the, every all the acting that's going on around him, especially with Reed, he was a little dry. He was a little subdued i think granted he was supposed to be because of the character but there wasn't much to him i mean they they talk a little bit about his backstory of traveling 
And, you know, I, I was thinking they were going to use, you know, some of his world experiences maybe would pay off later in the film. They don't. He's just, we need somebody there, but I'm trying not to spoil anything right now. Because, <laughs> because of, of, of what he is, you, you, but he's just, just there. I mean, there's not much to him. And I guess if we do a spoiler alert, I'll explain that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. What do you guys think? Do you think we should go delve into spoiler territory here and put out the alert for our listeners that if they want to go into this fresh, that they should stop listening for now and come back after? I, I think we kind of have to because there's some things that happen yeah. in here that, I mean, I think we all want to talk about the big trigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's some other things, too, that uh, especially towards the end that I'd like to, to look at. And, man, I, I, we can't do it without ruining the film. Uh, this film does have a pretty complex kind of twist more than once happening in the, in the thing. So, yeah, I think Casey's right. we got to put a warning out. Yeah, we're going to spoil the film here. To be fair, well, this was filmed in 63, so I think we're saying, you know, as far as the uh, legalities of spoilers, I think we're good. <laughs> the spoiler police aren't going to come get us? I don't think so. All right. Dude, she tried to kiss her brother. <laughs> I know. <laughs> totally ripped off Star Wars there. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because I was watching this movie and I, something about Oliver Reed, and I think it's from like the nose up, he looks like Mark Hamill. Really? I was just thinking Oliver Reed would have been an awesome Han Solo. <laughs> the Millennium Falcon would have been that much more faster and that much more dangerous if Oliver Reed was Han Solo. <laughs> oh, man. That was creepy, man. Yes. You know, and I know, and we're, we're spoiler spoiling the hell out of this thing now. No, it wasn't her brother. And I get it that, you know, he's like, oh, well, now I'm starting to fall for her, blah, blah, blah. But... But she didn't know that. She didn't know that. She, Tony, I'm in love with you. What? No, <laughs> you are not. You're, oh. And it is a trigger, and she goes crazy, and she starts yelling about how she's insane like her brother Simon. And then that's about it for that scene. After that, the next time we see her, she's kind of over it. Well, she, Tony did come and explain that, she, that he was not her brother. Yeah, but then she just kind of lets it go. Like, oh, yeah. okay, so it's okay that I tried to kiss you when I thought you were my brother. Oh, you're not my brother? Oh, no big deal. But she still calls him brother yeah. later on in the film. Yeah, but then is she in on the gig or yeah. on, on the thing or what, you know? It just... Well, it's, that's the beauty. Yeah. That's the beauty in Hike's sake, though, because where, where we see all throughout all this movie, we're seeing that Simon and his mom, or his aunt are pushing her into insanity and trying to tell everybody that she's crazy. This is the point where we realize that she's not quite right. <laughs> the, the, yeah. There is some truth to that going on there. Well, and how long has she been living with Simon and Francois and the aunt and being coddled and, and just manipulated? So, I mean, at this point, there's some damage done. Oh yeah. And it's going to take a little bit more yeah. than some, you know, imposter showing up. That's one thing I wanted to talk about with Keith and Tony. It's Keith's idea to send Tony or an imposter in there to try to get Tony. To, was was Tony an older brother than Simon? I believe so. Because that was I, the impression I, was, I got. Yeah. Because I was thinking that the will was set up such a way that the oldest kid would get the most money. So that means Tony would get the money and then... Keith would be, and his father would still be able to control the money because they control Tony. But right, and, and so this whole time, and, and you find that out earlier than I think you should in the film that Tony is an imposter. 
And I, I really, at, at that point, I got this incredible Scooby-Doo vibe from the whole film that he was going to be found out at the end of the movie and he was going <laughs> to utter the lines, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you crazy kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that never happened, and that was a twist I didn't see coming. I figured that Tony was going to get it at the end. They were All these crazy people were going to find out that he's not really... But then you come along and find out that Simon and the ant knew all along that it wasn't Tony. <laughs> Which is interesting that they played along with it for so long. But again, at the same time, once we realize why they can't, why they know that it's not Tony, because Simon is pretty nutty and he's, you know, since we're in spoiler territory here, he's got the mummified body of Tony in the chapel playing music to it every week. <laughs> Well, I think the reason they they played along with it because they saw it as they're still messing with Eleanor's mind to an extent, yeah. But I mean, the the, the most basic of it though is they can't say, well, well you know, because the lawyers at, d- doing these interviews and stuff like that, they kept saying it's an imposter, imposter, or an imposter, and he says, well, how could you be so sure? They can't say, well, because the real Tony's dead in the chapel. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we, we killed him. <laughs> We, we've got his body over here. Um, you know I how Simon goes. I assure you, it's yeah. not the real Tony. It's not. Just trust me on this, guys. <laughs> Bring me some brandy and trust me on this, guys. <laughs> and what the ant was doing when Tony was out in that room playing the organ was creepy. Yes. What? What? <laughs> what was that? She was perpetrating the vision that Tony was still alive and that Simon was playing to him by dressing up as a choir boy and wearing the creepiest mask I have ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> that was so that odd. Was- it's just, I, I didn't know what to think of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, we're going to play music that sounds like Tony, and I, and I get that. But the mask and then the hook just kind of came... That came so far out of the blue for me. It almost took me out of the film, to be honest, because suddenly, yeah. you know, we're in... Is this a slasher film? I mean, what what just happened here? And then it goes back to being what it is. I mean, I, I get it at the end when the ant's like, and this is why I did what I did. But man, you're right, that mask was pretty... Uh... <laughs> well, she was, she was trying to protect Simon. And I... <laughs> I want to know if there is any more to the relationship between Aunt Harriet and Simon beyond aunt and nephew. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, come on. The uh, uh, yeah. yeah? <laughs> That's, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. The, there's... <laughs> Definitely something more going on there, and it's weird. It's the way she coddles him and stuff like that. If she kind of takes on a motherly role, which doesn't help Scott's theory, which I think there's some truth behind. <laughs> but at the same time, too, that you can see it. That's the problem here is they don't give us enough detail on some of these on the backstory of these characters, so we don't know for sure and whatnot. But I kind of get the impression that as far as the Ashby fortune goes, the only ones that are looking to inherit are Simon, Tony, and his sister, and. Simon is working hard to make sure that it's only him, and Aunt Harriet knows that if she supports him, I, or a part of me wants to think that if Aunt, that Aunt Harriet knows that if she supports Simon, that he's going to take care of her, and that's sure. her into the fortune. 
Yeah, but they don't give us anything to actually show that. They just kind of leave it out there. Yeah, he's going to take care of her as well as he took care of Francine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, was another one of those, like, whoa, kind of turns. (laughs) I did not expect how that relationship ended to end that way. Oh, it didn't surprise me because she was leaving at that point. Yeah. And he, he had to shut her up, basically. Come here. No, Simon, it's finished. What makes you think I'd let you go? You don't have any alternative, Simon. If you try to stop me or come after me, I'll start telling people what I know. You don't know anything? Enough. Enough for what? You've always known that I wasn't exactly the blue-eyed boy. It's never seemed to worry you before. No, Simon. Please. I've never pretended to be anything that I wasn't. Not to you, anyway. I guess I just expected more berating, more yelling and kind of asserting his will as opposed to, well, we're spoiling it, killing her. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, after he kills her and there's that creepy shot, uh, I guess it's like a, pre- a POV shot. You see it in the trailer. If you go look at the trailer online where the camera is looking up through the water in which she's just been drowned, looking at uh, Simon and his hands like in the water after having shoved her down into the water. Because you don't actually see this immersion. You just kind of know what happens. And his hands in the water and he makes his fists in the water. And he's just got this blank kind of look on his face. It's creepy as hell. I loved that shot. It was unnerving as hell. And, and this is also where we start thinking maybe there's more going on to what really happened to Tony. Because then he says, nobody ever leaves me. Nobody ever leaves me. <laughs> yep. And, uh, yeah. well, Tony didn't leave either because uh, <laughs> nope. Tony's in the uh, chapel. Um, and one other thing that I want to mention about the chapel, because we see, and I thought this was interesting. Simon's playing the organ. And I would not have thought that this drunk, this fast-driving, hard-living guy who's running out of money because he spent it all on brandy knows how to play a church organ. And I thought that was an interesting choice to give the character that said at the very beginning when we first see him playing the church organ was awesome because as he's playing the church organ, he's smoking and then puts the cigarette out in one of the pipes in the pipe organ. Yep. <laughs> Just yeah. drops it in there. Which, again, because we're going to spoilers, is an interesting wraparound because at the very end of the film, the chapel's burned down, right? Is on fire. And that's not the first not thing the he's chapel, in, the chap- in, the, in an organ. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. That's not the same chapel, though, right? No. no. It, I, you know, it, it's not necessarily the same chapel. I just I thought it was an interesting... You know, right. a book ending of images, you know, the, the smoking, the, the disrespect of the chapel or the organ, excuse me. And I, I love that he's just like, yeah, whatever, cigarette, got to put it somewhere. Boom. And it makes <laughs> me wonder how many cigarette butts are in that one particular part. Because, <laughs> you know, this yeah. is not the first time he's been doing it. But, yeah, just, <laughs> wow. There's a lot of things to like in this film. I mean, I had a lot of issues with it as well. I mean, I think it's very well made. And, again, Scott and I talked a little bit last night. Or the other day off mic, and uh, I think it's a very well constructed film. There's a lot of stuff that's done incredibly well. The people involved knew what they were doing. I love the direction. I think Freddie Francis is director here. First of all, it's obvious that he's a cinematographer as well, because so many of the shots are are constructed in such a way that I, uh, you know, somebody who knows his way around a camera had to have been involved in putting it together. But he ended up. He went on to win a couple Oscars, didn't he? Yeah, he's an Academy Award winner, a winning cinematographer. 
uh, I believe he worked on like the film Glory. Uh, I think yeah. that might have been one of them. But I, I don't yes. remember off the top of my head. Yes, he uh, best cinematography for Glory, and in 1989, and best cinematography black and white for Sons and Lovers in 1960. Right, and so that Sons and Lovers was before Paranoiac, and then uh, he did some direction for Hammer. He is one of the other, if not the only other director for Hammer, who directed both of Dracula film and a Frankenstein film, uh, other than Terrence Fisher. You know, so I mean, he's a Hammer guy. He also did a lot of work with Amicus. He directed Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, which is an anthology film with. I've been waiting to work this in. Peter Cushing. Um, <laughs> Let's see. What's, what's the time? What's the time? How, how long did it take to get there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which it's, is actually... Peter, Peter Cushing uh, has come to that, you know, the word of the day on Pee Wee Herman. It's come to that level. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think Francis is, is solid as a director in this. Very good. Very in control of everything. And you kind of have to be. Uh, with Hammer anyway, because they're always kind of trying to save money and be as efficient as possible. But, you know, as a as director who knew his way around the camera, I think there are some wonderful shots. I mean, we talked about that creepy shot with Oliver Reed up through the water. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. I love that. I didn't feel in danger of when uh, or when Oliver Reed is driving around crazy in the car. I mean, the camera's mounted on the car and he's driving around and going fast. And at one point he almost fronts down Tony. I never felt out of control even though in a normal, in any other circumstance, if somebody's driving like that, I, I suppose I would feel kind of threatened or scared. I never felt out of control. I felt like Oliver Reed was always in control of the vehicle, of the car. Do you want to lift, Auntie? Instead of having this crazy car ride through the courtyard of the, the Ashby Estate or whatever, I felt like I was just along for the ride for all, with Oliver Reed and, and enjoying the, the speed, you know? And, and I don't know if... I'm making myself very clear here because I, I don't know, but I, I really in, enjoyed the direction and the and the, the directorial grip that Francis had on the film. I did not realize that he was also when we first started talking about it, that he did Glory as well. Glory is one of my all-time favorite films. Oh, it's a great film, yeah. and I did not know same guy. Well, it's the same level of appreciation there for me is he was the cinematographer on uh, Elephant Man, which was fantastic. Oh yeah, yep. I, I guess I, yeah, I had forgotten about that. very end the climax of the film in the book uh, hammer films a life in pictures wayne kinsey says that the mummified body of tony ashby is much better than the mummified body of mama bates in psycho <laughs> uh, much more impressive is what uh, they say the makeup was done by roy ashton which we've seen here on the show before in other films he's one of the the mainstays of especially earlier hammer what did you guys think? I mean, I, I don't know if I agree that it's better than the mother, but I thought it looked pretty good. But it's funny because when they first, when they show him sitting in the chair, it does look pretty good with the face and stuff like that. But they're there towards the end when we see the chapel on fire and stuff, and he goes back and grabs the mummified corpse. And he picks it up. It's pretty obvious that from the waist down, it's like a skeleton, you know, like a science lab plastic skeleton or something. Yeah. So they kind of threw that part together, but. <laughs> Up until then, I w- it was pretty good. I don't know if I call it better, but it's been a long time since I've seen Psycho Two. So, well, it, it it was on par, you know, from from the neck up. I will agree. And I had the same issue uh, with them picking it up, and you could see the skeleton uh, legs and feet. 
Yeah. Uh, in the book, in this book, uh, he does say that one morning a cleaner could be seen running through the corridors of Bray, screaming her head off after she'd found the corpse sitting in Roy Ashton's makeup chair. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking in 1963, if you're a cleaner working for Hammer, wouldn't you come to expect to see something like that in the makeup chair? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you not know where you're working? I mean, it, come on, might have been a temp. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Oh, she's new. This is how we break in the new girls. You know, it's, go clean the makeup room. <laughs> Simon tried to kill Tony by cutting the brakes in the car, but Eleanor is the one that almost goes over the cliff. Well, it was Eleanor's car. Yeah. They'd gone out for a picnic, and he'd, he'd cut the brakes. And, yeah, that whole scene was just kind of, I think he wanted to off both of them. He knew they were going to be together. Yeah, <laughs> together. Because <laughs> uh, that's also right near the scene where they do the kiss, right? Um, it's like shortly after that. Shortly or, after that, because it's, it's yeah. back at the mansion when they do that. Uh, and the kiss. <laughs> that, that's the big thing that we've been kind of dancing around at the very beginning of this. The kiss, man. She, Tony is, is just exuding this you know i i'm i'm in love with you kind of vibe and well she first first gives him a little peck like you would give your brother or sister when you're going to bed right then who initiated it that's what because it looked like they both did yeah kind of at the same time just like they just fell right into it which makes me wonder about the relationship that they had before tony was uh, committed suicide <laughs> you know which again then goes to the whole what's really up with the aunt and simon and what's really going on with the ash piece here and uh the well goes so deep yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm in love with you tony oh but but you're my brother what no don't do <laughs> well it's funny too because when keith uh, coster the lawyer's son but first uh is talking to the guy who's pretending to be Tony. He even warned him then. He says, be careful. You know, you are supposed to be your brother. Look, you knew what you were in for right from the beginning. I didn't know the people involved then. Don't tell me you like them. Unless, of course, Eleanor. Well, well, well. I take it she has accepted you as her brother. (laughs) Makes things a bit awkward for you, doesn't it? So he must have seen that coming a mile away. Yeah. (laughs) Man. Which makes you wonder if maybe there was something that the you know the town was aware of. Well, the, the Ashby's are pretty well known in town. They're pretty you know, well to do and kind of get away with whatever they want. I mean, the the bar fight, the brunkle, the drunken brawl that Simon tries to get into with people. I get the impression that was not the first time Simon's been seen working himself up at a bar. Yeah. That that they kind of let him do that because he's an Ashby. So I, I do get the vibe or the impression that the Ashby's probably get away with a lot in this town. So, yeah, you know, they're doing each other up in their home, whatever. But it's the Ashby's. Leave them alone. What else is there to say? I'll just go, jump in here and my thoughts on this film, ultimately. I thought this movie was, you know, it was all, it was an okay watch. It was, it was enjoyable. I think it had a lot of holes that kept it from being great. I think a large part of that comes from the more telling versus showing uh, as far as the writing goes and whatnot. I thought the acting was all great, and I thought there's a lot of really great elements to this movie. They just 
weren't put together as well as they could have been. I think the biggest thing, and I mentioned this earlier, the biggest thing is the underlying theme of this movie is that this the son, Keith Coster, the lawyer's son, is embezzling out of that trust fund, and he wants to keep it going. So he brings this guy in to pretend to be Tony Ashby and you know send him into the house to you know kind of keep to confuse everybody and keep them off his track and all that stuff. So ultimately, if they would have kept that part of if they would have kept the true origins of Tony under wraps and revealed it later on in the movie that he was, you know, that he was an imposter. And then we find out that Simon and his aunt knew that he was an imposter because of the corpse in the chapel and all that stuff. It would have been really shocking on par with, you know, a good Hitchcock flick. So to me, it fell down the scale a little bit because of that. I'm almost on the same page as you. I think that I didn't necessarily need to have Tony revealed as an imposter later. I actually think the film also would have worked if we had revealed that Tony was an imposter earlier in the film. Uh, Because at the very end of the film, when Eleanor and Tony run off together, it just kind of ends for me. Are we not going to see any kind of fallout from Eleanor being like, why would you try to trick us? You know, it just seems very... Oh, okay, we're going to run off together? All right, let's go. And it just kind of ends. And I guess for an ending like that for me to work, because it is kind of a life-changing ending for this character, for Eleanor, I wanted more weight, more uh, of an explanation as to what the hell is going on to anchor it earlier in the film. But I also know what kind of film this is. I mean, they call it a mini Hitchcock. Or as one of our listeners, uh, Adrian, said on our Facebook page, a mini Clouseau if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the director of Diabolique from 1955. So, I mean, I get that you would want to have all these twists and all these things going on. The story's not really about the drama of what's really going on. The story's more about the suspense and the twists and, and all these things. So I get that. But I wanted a heavier anchor in terms of what's going on with this guy, Tony. What's his real name? What's his background? I wanted more to justify the ending for me. Yeah. I, I also have a problem with the ending, and it's... What happened to Aunt Harriet? I was yeah. Ex- yeah. I was expecting you, you see Simon go rushing in to to try to quote unquote save uh, Tony's corpse from the fire, and then you see uh, Tony and Eleanor run away. I was expecting them to run back in the house and have to face Aunt Harriet, who's now lost Simon, who would be just completely off a rocker by that point. Uh huh. And I, I would like to have seen that. You know, what happened? What happened to her? You know, she even comes in there at the end uh, and takes Simon out of that chapel when uh, when Tony's tied up and says, basically, let me take care of this. I'll take care of everything. And she's the one that sets fire to the chapel. But then she walks out and she's done. You you, you don't see her get her come up. It's you don't see her. You know what happened to her? Everybody seems to think you just got to tie the guy up and walk away, even though Eleanor's running around somewhere. You know, it, it seems very, you know, we're going to burn him down in the chapel. We're going to tie Tony up because he's clearly not the right guy. You know, whenever we're going to kill him, get him out of the picture so we don't have to worry about this anymore. But there's no forethought to, well, how are we going to explain the chapel catching on fire? And are they going to find this other guy's body? How are we going to explain where Tony ended up? And, oh, wait a minute, Eleanor's still around. Maybe she's going to, we got to tie her up too. You know, it just seems very, you know, and then the aunt just disappears. And, I mean, she could have been off doing all that stuff, but. Yeah. I think part of the assumption there could be, though, that as far as if Eleanor is running around, the whole town already thinks she's nuts. 
So they can explain it off that she flipped out and set the chapel on fire. They're not as worried about that. Nobody's going to believe her if she tries to defend herself. It's probably the assumption there. They just didn't give us enough to set that up. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that, too, because they've manipulated her sanity all through before this imposter Tony showed up, so they weren't worried too much about her. They'd just do it again. Yeah, I got to think in their mind, in Simon and Aunt Harriet's mind, is that they've got total control over Ellen, Eleanor at this point, so they're, it's, not, it's just an afterthought. It's you know not even a concern. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of the movie. I mean, don't get me wrong. And I think the technical elements, especially the direction uh, work, I think some of the writing is pretty sharp. I do like a lot of the dialogue, especially with Simon. Uh, one of my favorite bits of dialogue is when he comes stumbling into the do- you know, into the home, and the aunt's like, "Where have you been?" Where have you been? I've been drinking. Now I'm going to drink some more. I love that moment. I think there's a lot of wonderful moments, especially with Reed. And I don't know if that's Reed bringing something to the table. Uh, Jimmy Sangster is the writer, and he's a solid screenwriter for Hammer. Uh, you know, from what I understand, Sankster really liked this one uh, as one of the best, if not the best of his, what he calls fear pictures, as opposed to monster pictures that he wrote for Hammer. So I, I think the dialogue is great, and I think there's some wonderful moments, but I think when you start looking at it overall and you start poking holes in it the way that we're doing it now, it does kind of fall apart in some spots. Yeah. Even though this is a movie that I just simply enjoyed instead of actually, you know, really liked or anything, but there's some really good scenes in here, like you said, that really are kind of captivating and grab you and hold your attention. It's just they don't hold out through the whole movie. I would say ultimately for me, this is a decent movie that needed more to make it great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely Hitchcockian. You know, I think calling it a mini Hitchcock is is an apt way to describe it. I mean, Hammer saw the success of Psycho in 1960, and there's a whole cycle of these films. I mean, this one, Crescendo, Fanatic, Hysteria, Maniac. I mean, there's a handful of them that are all these kind of suspense thriller types. I've seen a handful of them. I think this one's solid. Uh, I think keeping it in black and white was a, a good choice. I mean, at this point, Hammer's known for their you know, color in your face horror. And I think keeping this as a black and white film worked. Right. And uh, again, I wonder if that has more to do with having a cameraman in the director's chair uh, who knew how to work the black and white medium. I think that worked. I enjoyed the film despite some of these plot holes that we're bringing up. I really enjoyed Oliver Reed's uh, performance. I thought he was uh, very well at hiding some of his inner demons i mean he and replacing them with the alcohol so that's what everybody would see as the drunk and not see the 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 craziness that was really behind the alcoholism and i thought he played that really well obviously i as we've said he was the best character on screen and and you really were drawn to watching him every time he was on there I thought Aunt Harriet was pretty good. She wasn't given a whole lot of screen time, but I thought she was very crazy and very enabling. And I'd like to have, have seen a proper ending for her. Eleanor, she was really good, but she was also there wasn't a whole lot to her other than, you know, being manipulated and, and everything, but and then there's the whole, you know, is Tony your brother or Tony or not and kissing him and everything. 
But overall, I enjoyed the film. Glad I got a chance to watch it. Um, you know, as as the listeners know, I haven't watched very many Hammer films. I was more familiar with their science fiction offerings, so I didn't even know they made movies like this. So this was this was a fun watch for me. So the big question then, Scott, is this one of your top five now? No, I'm sorry, okay. it's not one of my top five. Okay, no, <laughs> hey, it's, it's not mine either, man. Yeah, it sounds like you might have enjoyed it more than both of us. So, or either one, you know, Casey or I. So, well, I'm also yeah. a big film fan of Hitchcock films, so I am drawn to this type of film anyway, and mm-hmm. um, so I think that helped me enjoy That's the right. film more. Oh, I love Hitchcock, man, but I think Hitchcock did Hitchcock better than Hammer did. <laughs> well, yeah. I I agree. I just, yeah. but as for this type of film, I enjoyed it. We got to get you to watch Fear in the Night, man. That's that's awesome. And he's got Peter Cushing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really interested to hear more about this Peter Cushing fellow. (laughs) I hear he's an excellent actor. (laughs) I agree with what both of you guys said. There are a lot of things to really enjoy. And and I think it does have some awesome elements to it. But I did have some issues with, with it. And this was the first time I'd watched the film. I have had it here at home. In two different versions, uh, this film is released as part of a set called the Hammer Horror Series that was released back in 2005 by Universal. It's part of a pack of movies that includes Brides of Dracula, Curse of the Werewolf, Phantom of the Opera, Kiss of the Vampire, Nightmare, Night Creatures, and Evil of Frankenstein. But it's also available as a Blu-ray. In fact, this film is the very first Hammer film uh, of the classic camera to have been released on Blu-ray, which seemed like an odd or interesting choice to me, uh, put out in 2010. I have the Blu-ray here. I picked it up. I just hadn't had a chance to watch it until we talked about it on the show. The Blu-ray looks nice. I mean, it looks good, and again, it, it looks like a cameraman shot it. Well, I mean, all films are shot by cameramen, but you know what I mean. It looks like there's a cameraman in a director's chair. And so it looks great and all, but... The Blu-ray is a little lacking on special features. For me, to justify 40 bucks for a Blu-ray, which is what it's selling for on Amazon right now, you got to have more than the movie and a trailer and a handful of behind-the-scenes production photos on it. Uh, I've seen almost all of these photos that are in this Blu-ray in books like you know, Hammer Films, A Life in Pictures, and things like that. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of new material for me. That said, it still looks and sounds good. Is it a uh, Region 1 or Region 2? You know, when I got it from Amazon, Amazon calls it an import, but I think it's region free because it plays just fine on my Blu-ray player. Okay. So I, I don't have any problems with that. So I think it's region free. I'd have to dig a little deeper to find out. But So if you're a completist and want to have as much hammer on Blu-ray as possible, I mean, yeah, I'd recommend picking it up. But it, again, you're not going to get a lot of special features with it. Which is disappointing to me, too. Oh, I would have loved a commentary of some sort. I mean... There are so many Hammer scholars out there, you know, Wayne Kinsey, you know, Marcus Hearns and all them. I, I imagine they'd have a field day picking this movie apart because of all the different things going on on the family level. You know, what what is the extent of the relationship of this person or that person or what? You know, it's there's a lot to delve into and we've just kind of scratched the surface. You know, I would love to have a real in-depth with somebody who's been tracking Hammer or following Hammer a lot longer than we have to really get into it. But yeah, I mean, it's. I've had it for a while. I'm glad I watched it for the for the show. It's not one of my top five. I, I don't think it's in one of my top tens. I think it's probably my favorite Oliver Reed performance in a Hammer film. I've seen him in a few. Although I still love him in Night Creatures with Peter Cushing. 
<laughs> and I'm not trying to be funny there. In Night Creatures, I really think that he acts better because he's not Oliver Reed, per se. Whereas in this one, I felt like he was Oliver Reed turned up to 11. And I don't know. I mean, I, I like it, but I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch it again anytime soon. Yeah, that's what I, that's exactly what I was thinking is this is a movie I'm glad I watched and I enjoyed what I didn't watch. It's not one that I'm going to go out of my way to watch again, though. Uh, I, I'm glad I watched it as well, and, and I may throw it in uh, again sometime in the future. Unfortunately, it's going to suffer from knowing all the twists. It's going to take away a lot for rewatchability in my mind, even though I do like to rewatch oh, the um, the Hitchcock films because they're you know so much higher quality, the story and everything. So I, I don't know how often I'll watch it, but I'm sure I'll watch it again because I, I did enjoy it. I think you just nailed it for me. I think that was it because I also love Hitchcock. You know, I can watch Psycho and North by Northwest is fantastic and Rear Window. I mean, I love these films, even though I know the twists and the turns and who did what to when. You know, I get that. I wonder if there's just something about Paranoiac where once he kind of know everything, is it going to be as enjoyable to, to watch again? I mean, I suppose you can watch it and enjoy it for the craftsmanship, but... I think you just nailed it. Hitchcock's got a rewatchability. I don't know if this one will. Maybe that's my issue with it. And on that note, next weekend, I will be watching a lot of Hitchcock films. Yeah, I'm jealous, man. (laughs) Maybe we should start a Hitchcock podcast, too. (laughs) Yes, our wives will love that. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of wives, Scott, I wanted to ask you, because I know your wife, Tracy, also is a huge Hitchcock fan. Mm -hmm. Did she watch this one with you? No, she did not. She oh, okay. she was under the weather yesterday, and um, so I, I watched it on my own. She did not watch this one. And that's one reason why I may watch it again. I may watch it with her because I think she might enjoy it. I'd like to hear what she has to think of it. You know, it doesn't have a lot of the, the skimpiness, the nudes, the, the, the be- heaving bosoms and all that. It doesn't have any of that. Well, there's the one, the one shot of Francois. You, uh, know, you know what? I wanted to mention that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, that was one of my favorite scenes in that movie, and it wasn't just because of Francois or Nighty. Um, <laughs> there was, that scene was fantastic to see the relationship between uh, Simon and his Harriet, because he opens the door and he's got Francois hidden there, and Harriet's riding him and stuff, you know, giving him the business and all this stuff, and then he gets done, he's like, yeah, well, whatever, I'm going to do what I want anyways, and then he steps back specifically so Harriet could see Francois sitting on his bed. Yeah, not just sitting background. on his bed, but, but like She's in a position where she looks like she's just been taken advantage of, even though as an audience we know she hasn't been physically because we were there. But she's got this, like, ashamed kind of look, like she just got brutalized in some way. And she just seems so embarrassed that Aunt Harriet's seeing it. And and, and, and Simon's like, yeah, what? Now, see, I (laughs) I got a completely different vibe from that scene because – in my mind, I thought there was something going on between Ariet and Simon, and I thought he was trying to make her jealous. That may be. To an extent, I think he was. Sure. Yeah, either way, he's like, yeah, what? <laughs> I need some brandy. <laughs> yeah. I need a drink. <laughs> that was his drink of choice, wasn't it, brandy, throughout the whole film? Yes. I need more brandy. Why are we out of brandy? Yeah. Brandy, brandy, brandy. Now I'm going to drink some more. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry we're a little low on brandy. <laughs> 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 oh man so yeah uh, Paranoiac good film 
some really interesting elements and really fun to pick apart with some friends if you have a Hammer podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I hope if you've gotten to this point and you hadn't watched it, I'm I'm sorry. You you should have stopped when we told you to to watch it. Yeah, yeah. man, we just spoiled the hell out of it. Uh, but we if warned you though. yeah, we did warn you. We we warned you. <laughs> All right, so that's Paranoiac. Uh, next month, we are talking about one of Scott's top fives, right? Um, North by Northwest? One of Scott's <laughs> top Hammer films. <laughs> Is it Quatermass? It's Quatermass. <laughs> yes, we are, talk- we are talking about the Quater. Is it the Quatermass Experiment? Which one- Where is that in your list? Um... I know Quatermass in the Pit was number one. Number three, yes. Yes. The Quatermass Experiment next month and the month after that, The Old Dark House. So we'll get to revisit Jeanette Scott uh, in that. Uh, the Quatermass Experiment, this will be the first time we've talked about one of Hammer's science fiction-ish films. So that'll be fun. And again, you can find out all the films that we've covered in the past, the films that are coming up. If you head over to our Facebook page or our Facebook group, so go look up 1951 Down Place on Facebook. There's also a lot of conversation happening over there regarding uh, The Women in Black and other films coming up and the fact that a lot of films are now being restored and released on Blu-ray. I am personally holding out on picking up any of the Blu-rays from the UK right now because I did discover my Blu-ray player is not region-free like I thought it was. So uh, they would just do me no good if I picked them up and had them here. But I've heard that, yeah, I've heard they're going to be porting them over to the U- U.S. at some point. Well, Hammer's a big thing now because they're back and they're doing really good. So, Yeah, yeah. I think The Woman in Black really kind of put them on the map, and now we've got all these remastered or restored editions and things like that. Even if they don't get released in the U.S., I will eventually, I'm sure, pick up a region-free Blu-ray player down the line, and I'll, I'll pick them up that way. But, man, I want Plague of the Zombies is coming out on Blu-ray, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, talking about that with uh, one of our listeners, Richard, over on his Facebook page. Also on our Facebook page is our poll where you can help us program a future episode of 1951 Down Place. The deadline for that is the end of May. So head over there and cast your vote for which film you want us to cover. Right now in the running is Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Vampire Circus, X the Unknown, Rasputin, The Mad Monk, Twins of Evil, Scott's favorite, Four-Sided Triangle, (laughs) The Curse of the Werewolf, and Hell is a City. Go so four-sided the, triangle. <laughs> In the lead is Dracula, Prince of Darkness. So if you want to help shape the future of our podcast, you can go over there and, and vote for which film you want us to cover. And, and like I said, the end of May is the deadline on that. We have a new way to reach us on the show. We have a new way to, to give feedback to us. That's right. Actually, we now have two ways that you could leave us a voicemail. You can still call us at area code 765-203-1951, or you can head over to our website at 1951downplace.com, and on each one of the pages on our site, there is a link that's on the right side of the page that says, click here to send us a voicemail for free. If you click that, it's going to use your computer's um, microphone. You just speak into it. You can record up to five minutes of anything that you want to provide feedback to us, and then it automatically sends that to us once you save it. So you don't have to experience any long-distance uh, 
charges on your phone or anything, and it's simple and easy to do. Cool. And you can still find us on Twitter as well at uh, twitter.com slash 1951downplace. You know, every time we put out a new episode of this show, I go and I post uh, some things and some message boards like the Classic Horror Film Board or the Universal Monster Army. So if you are a member of those message boards, you can always find a place to maybe start talking about the show over there as well. Although we do try to focus a lot of our discussion on our Facebook page. So feel free to join us over there if you want to chat it up with us and the rest of the listeners. All right, so uh, each one of us have several different other podcasts going on right now that we need to go work on, so I think we should probably wrap up. Yes. <laughs> Quater Mass. Quater Mass, next month. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that, too. And there's no incestuous uh, parts to it. Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know, because there's that whole alien presence thing, and then the thing with the line and the tight. Ty- oh, wait. <laughs> and there's no drinking of brandy that I can remember. Oh. <laughs> That's a shame. Does Quatermass need a little Oliver Reed? <laughs> no, it needs some Peter Cushing. <laughs> I will throw in there, this is a really bad joke and it's a long way to go for it, but it tickled me funny. I don't know if you guys ever watched Animaniacs back in the day. Oh, yeah. I just was so thrilled the oh, fact no. that I could actually say hello, nurse, and actually mean something. <laughs> <laughs> oh. See, see, I save that from when I when I'm watching uh, the Mash movie. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I got oh. that out of my system, so I'm good. <laughs> I think we just found what I'm going to put at the very end of the episode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>